What's good, Code Switch listeners? We got a quick announcement for you. We are going to Alabama. WBHM and NPR have teamed up to bring you Code Switch live from Birmingham. It's on Tuesday, August 14th at 8 p.m. at UAB's Alice Stevens Center. We have some dope guests, including Mayor Randall Woodfin and WBHM's Gigi Duban. It's going to be a lot of fun. You can get your tickets now for the live taping of our podcast at nprpresents.org. Game show, game show, game show. It's part two of the Code Switch Word Watch Game Show. I'm Shereen Marisol Miraji, your host for the evening, along with my partner in crime, Gene Demby. Hey, GD, you ready for this? I think so. Um, my sequin dress, you know, all this wagon I'm dragging, uh, it's drying <laughs> up a little bit in the back. Let me just fix that. <laughs> there we go. We're good. We're good. Okay, good. All right. Uh, before we get this party started, let's remind folks who might have missed last week's show what we're going to do. We're watching out for words with racial or ethnic backstories. A lot of the terms we'll be discussing on this episode get thrown around without much thought. So we're going to talk about where they come from and what they really mean. Correct. Last week, we dropped part one of the Word Watch Game Show. We went deep on two words, boy and guru. Today, we've got white trash. Proud of my ethnic background, I am 100% pure white trash. (laughs) Our Christmas lights have been on since 1972. That was the comedian John DeResta at a show in 2009. Gene, tell him what else we got coming. We're going to dig into the origin of this musical phrase. And we're also going to play a game throughout the episode to test your knowledge of racially coded words and phrases. Here's how to play. We'll give you a couple of clues, and you're going to try to guess the word. The answers are at the end of the show. No fast-forwarding. So all of these are going to be words that we've explored on the Code Switch blog as part of our Word Watch series. So if you are a diehard Code Switch reader, you're going to have an advantage here. Shireen, mm-hmm. would you please do the honors and read our first clue? Happily. This phrase is often used to describe a politician who strays from party lines. It was first used in the 19th century, though, in reference to the activities of Native Americans. Hillary Clinton was criticized for saying it on CNN in 2016. Well, you know, remember, I, um, I have a lot of experience dealing with men who sometimes get the way they behave and how they speak. Okay, okay, first used in reference Mm -hmm. to Native Americans and is now used to describe politicians who don't toe the party line. What is this phrase? Hmm. (laughs) Let's keep talking about offensive words with janky histories. Joining us now is our teammate, Leah Danella. Hey, Leah. Hey, guys. What's the word? It's actually two words. Mm. White trash. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, white trash. Yeah. And I imagine when you hear those words, there are probably some images that come to mind right away. Mm-hmm. You don't know karate, you white trash! The mullet and Ted Nugent boots. I like to call them Tammy's trashy nachos. With white trash tiramisu, it's a snap. Shut up! I'm proud to be a redneck piece of white trash. Some of those I know are kind of silly, but there's a whole string of really negative words that we associate with white trash. So things like poor, lazy, uneducated, violent, dirty, immoral, racist. I talked to some experts and asked them to define white trash for me. Um, They talked about sexual immorality, alcoholism. Nowadays, the connotation is that they're probably crack or meth addicts or opioid addicts. 
they live in trailer parks and ramshackle cabins in the woods, and they are rude and crude and obnoxious. So that was Matt Ray. He's a professor at Temple University, and he wrote a book called Not Quite White, White Trash and the Boundaries of Whiteness. Uh-huh. Ah. And Matt pointed out that the phrase white trash is actually kind of an oxymoron. You think about these two words, white and trash, and you realize that they have nearly opposite meanings. White suggesting purity, cleanliness, even the sacred, uh, while trash is about impurity, dirtiness, and the profane. And Matt said that that contradiction exists because white trash is used to describe a sort of contradiction, which is white people who don't act like white people. Hmm. This is a term that really has white supremacy baked into it (laughs) because it's kind of like it's understood that if you're not white, you're trash. Yeah, that's interesting. You're going to have to explain that a little bit more because when I was hearing him say that this contradiction exists, I was thinking, well, not everyone thinks of the word white and white people in the same way. Yeah, I mean, that's (laughs) totally true. But what Matt was saying is that we have all these really old racist stereotypes about black and brown people in the United States. So the stereotypes are things like black people are poor, they're lazy, they're violent, they're criminals and thugs. For white people, there aren't those same kind of deep ingrained cultural stereotypes. So when they behave poorly, I'm using your air quotes, Gene, then they become white trash, not just regular white people. Another professor I spoke to, John Hartigan at the University of Texas in Austin, said that white trash is a word that's used to talk about white people who are perceived to have too much in common with black people. And he says he saw some of that when he was studying poor white communities in Detroit. One of the things I looked at was the the history of of migration there. Um, And as you were having a lot of of African-Americans coming up from Alabama and Georgia, you were having these whites from uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, and West Virginia. Um, And they talked like black people, and they ate like black people, and they comported themselves because they shared a regional identity. Um, and there were a lot of forms of discrimination against hillbillies by whites in Detroit uh, because they undermined the ability to keep that line between whiteness and blackness clear. Hmm. So where does the term white trash come from, Leah? Well, there's actually a kind of two-part history, and I think it tells us a lot about the way we think about poor people in this country. Curious. Okay. So it turns out that poor white people have been compared to trash for centuries. I talked to Nancy Eisenberg, the author of the book White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America. Mm -hmm. And she says the idea that poor equals trash goes all the way back to Europe. So hundreds of years ago, in the early days of colonization, England sent hordes of poor white people to America. And Nancy Eisenberg says these people were referred to as waste people. And this is where the term white trash comes from. These were people who were seen as unproductive and idle, uh, wandering vagrants. They were going to unload them on the new world. Waste people to be said with a posh English accent. Waste people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she has a whole list of all the trash synonyms that were used over the years for people. So that's where the, the, the trash part comes from. But the white part doesn't come until a little bit later. Okay, so 
How did that happen? Okay, so Matt Ray, our scholar from before, said that it actually started around the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area in the early 1800s. <laughs> so this was still during slavery, um, but there was a pretty sizable population of free black people in this area. And a lot of them actually had decent jobs and pretty good educations. So his best guess historically is that those free blacks sort of ironically started referring to poor white people as white trash because they were often uneducated and didn't have very good jobs. So Mm. black Black people people started calling white people white trash and we call them and that's where it comes from? Well, that's the best guess. So Matt's theory is that once that word started being used among black people, rich white people picked up on it right away. Mm. Um, And white (laughs) slave owners were all over it. Like they could not get enough of this term white trash. So they Columbus (laughs) white trash. (laughs) Appropriated it. Yes. (laughs) It's like lit. It's exactly. Um, And these rich white people, slave owners, uh, many of them started using the term white trash in really interesting ways that still shape the way we talk about poor white people. Hmm. Like what? Okay, so one of the stereotypes about white trash is that they're more racist than any other group. Right. So Matt told me the story of a dinner that happened in 1833. There was this English actress touring the United States. And one day she visits this plantation um, to have dinner with the daughter of one of the largest slaveholders in Maryland. And they're sitting and eating and having a good time. Um, And the daughter is talking about the plantation. And she says everyone on the plantation is one big happy family. Blacks, whites, everyone lives together in harmony. (laughs) Um, Yep. But the woman turns to her friend, this actress, and says, I'll admit, though, there are racial tensions in this country. And those tensions are between blacks and white trash. And, and that has always been part of this phrase. Whites who use the term are saying, look, I'm not racist. <laughs> right? The person down the road is racist, the one who drops the N-word or who has the Confederate flag flapping off the back of their truck. That's real racism. Hmm. It's also the classic divide-and-conquer strategy. Yeah, Matt Ray was talking about how During slavery, towards the end of slavery, there was no real place for poor white people in the labor market. Because because they could be like undercut wages wise. I mean, they couldn't. Exactly. They couldn't compete with people who owned slaves. Right. So they had very few options when it came to getting land, capital, property, all of that kind of stuff. Um, And that was a huge argument, actually, that abolitionists were making, that even if you didn't care about black people and their plight under slavery, abolishing slavery would be the best possible thing for poor whites in the South. Right. Yeah, we've talked about this a lot, that uh, social justice comes when you can make the argument that it's good for white people in America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more history there, but I guess that The bigger point is that white trash over the years has been this incredibly useful concept because it does all this stuff. It scapegoats poor white people. It allows other white people to still be pure and good. And at the same time, it just reinforces white supremacy. So that's pretty good for two syllables, I think. (laughs) Thank you, Leah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. There's even more to White Trash. It's in Leah's piece on the Code Switch blog. Check it out. But until then, it's clue time. This phrase, often accompanied with a clapping or snap of the fingers, means hurry up. And according to the 1886 edition of Hobson Jobson, an Anglo-Indian dictionary, the phrase comes from the Cantonese word gup, 
meaning to make haste. And don't be looking in your 1886 edition of Hops and Jops and I know what y'all are doing out there trying to do. I see, yeah. I see y'all cheating. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> no cheating. You're going to find out the answers at the end of the show. Yes, stay just, with stay, us. just stay patient and stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but ZipRecruiter can make it simple, smart, and fast. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 job boards with one click. Then it scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com switch. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Stitcher. The podcast LeVar Burton Reads is back for a new season. In each episode, LeVar Burton handpicks a different short story from renowned authors like Octavia Butler and Neil Gaiman and reads it to you. Subscribe to LeVar Burton Reads wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Guy Raz here. And on the latest episode of How I Built This, how Stuart Butterfield failed in two companies, pivoted, and then built two amazing new companies, Flickr and Slack. Check out How I Built This wherever you listen to podcasts. Jean. Shireen. Code Switch. Word Watch Game Show. NPR Swag for the first person to email us at codeswitch at npr.org and tell us what album that little game show soundbites from. No shazamming. We'll announce the winner next week as well as the answer. Okay, and here's your next clue. What do you call someone working on their podcast while sipping on a cold brew at a coffee shop in Bushwick? Come on, that's too easy. I guess Williamsburg will work too. Or Austin. Austin <laughs> no, Texas. Williamsburg is too it's too fancy now. Oh, is it? Okay. I think so. Okay. Anyway. Well, this phrase, <laughs> this word that this clue refers to goes back to the 1930s and 40s and the word was synonymous with white negro. Huh? I'll let y'all sit White in that, Negro. Just marinate in that clue for a little bit. White Negroes and people working on podcasts sipping on cold brew in Bushwick. What do mm. they have in common? It's this word. And we're going to mix things up now and talk about a musical phrase. Ah. Here to break that down for us is our teammate Kat Chow. What's good, Kat? Hey, guys. So that nine-note melody we just heard, where is that from? (laughs) So that specific recording is from an NPR intern. Her name is Imani Mosley, and she played it for us on a piano. She just happened to know it? Yeah, she just happened to know it because everyone knows it. But the tune has been in a ton of things in the past few Mm -hmm. decades. Oh, 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 oh. Do you guys remember this song? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know that song. It's Kung Fu Fighting. Everybody was Kung Fu Fighting. Yeah, so that's Carl Douglas's song from 1974. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. Um, I feel so, like I, like, oh, I'm sorry. No, go for <laughs> it. I'm going to wax poetic about Kung Fu Fighting. No, please do. I wasn't even born when that song came out, but I feel like I've heard that song so many times yeah, over me too, my life, right? right? Everyone loves to play it at karaoke, and like being the Asian in the room when that happens, you're just like, why? 
why does the song exist? Was it like on a soundtrack? Or was it just like, oh, this is this is his breakout single? Like, what was it? How, was the <laughs> it context? Kind of was his breakout single, and like uh, the lyrics to it are really terrible. He uses like, "You are a funky China man" and like Chinatown. I don't know. It would not fly right now. But anyway, so the riff that he has in that song, it's it's in so many things. You know, you would recognize it in pop songs. It's in a lot of cartoons. Mm-hmm. It's in a kids' movie. Do you guys remember Aristocats? One of the yes. lesser Disney movies. Yes, the Aristocats. Yes, sorry, the Aristocats. So that's a Disney movie from 1970. And I want to play you guys this clip where there's this Siamese cat. He has buck teeth. Yeah. And he's wearing a triangle hat. He's singing. He's banging on a keyboard with chopsticks. Shanghai, Hong Kong, and Fu Yang. (laughs) Fortune cookie, always wrong. (laughs) Wow, that's so racist. (laughs) I was thinking of the other one. Siamese, if you please. Yes. No, that's from Lady and the Tramp. Oh, well then. That is also really racist. So actually, it's not just in movies, but it's in video games too. Super Mario Land, the 1989 Game Boy game, had it. And you hear it when you reach this mystical Asian kingdom called Chai Kingdom. Chai Kingdom? So all of these examples, they nod to something vaguely Asian. Like if we heard those notes, you sort of know that what follows is probably going to refer to an entire continent. The whole continent. Yeah, the whole one. And the funny thing, guys, about this riff is that it followed me around as I grew up. Like I, I knew what it was when I was little. It just It was like I was born with it. And I have this really visceral memory from high school where I was in the orchestra for my high school's production of Beauty and the Beast, and I played the oboe. And when my friend, who's also Chinese-American, she walked into the music room, one of our white classmates would just, like, bang this nine-note tune out on his piano. Wow. Uh-uh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, it seems so clear to me that this is something that people know is this automatic, like, entry and exit music for Asians. Right. So it's everywhere. Everyone just instinctively knows what it's referring to. So where the hell does it come from? So it took me a while to find out, and I called up a lot of experts, and none of them really knew for sure. But then I found this guy. Hello. He's a Swedish web designer. My name is Martin Nilsson. So back in 2006, Martin was studying at this piano conservatory, and he got all caught up in the mystery of those nine notes. And so he scoured these sheet music archives, and a lot of people were really curious, so he built a website dedicated to it. An entire website dedicated to these nine notes? Like, what's on, on the website? What What's there? He basically used the website to like chronicle his search for the melody. So it's got all of these examples of the riff that he found from the sheet music. He analyzes it. So here's what Martin found after a month or so. It doesn't come from Chinese folk music, really. So it's just a caricature of how they would think the Chinese music would sound. Ah, uh, they. They, yeah, who's... The royal they. <laughs> the royal they, referring to mostly Western composers. So people with names like T. Comer, W.L. Hayden... Chaz J. Newman. And so Martin noticed that in music that was composed in as early as the mid-1800s, there was this pattern that sort of resembled the nine-note phrase that we hear today. It was rhythmic, um, and so it wasn't a tonal pattern. Okay. He calls it the Far East proto-cliché. If you have the modern variant, it's... 
but back in those days it was just mainly the first four notes and then the melody could go either way. Hmm. So on Martin's website, he actually put some examples of this Far East proto-cliché. And here's a little clip from 1847, and it's called the Aladdin Quickstep. And you can hear that rhythm. And this one's called the Chinese Gallop. And it's from 1871, composed by W.L. Hayden. And then this one is from the opera The Mikado from 1885. Hmm. Hmm. Do you guys recognize it? Does it sound vaguely familiar? Vaguely. Vaguely. Right. Okay. So as time goes on, the progression of this tune, it veers a little closer to what we know. And so this is a clip from 1900 that's a lot closer. It's called Mama's China Twins Oriental Lullaby. Mama's China Twins Oriental Lullaby. I'm sorry. I just don't want to let that pass without. Yeah, just... the titles of these are really, really great, like Chinese Gallop. Anyway, so yeah. the rhythm is one part of the equation. But as we get into the 1900s, Martin notices that these rhythms also follow this tonal pattern. And okay. that pattern fits into something called the pentatonic scale. All right, for those of us who are musical literates, ooh, raise my hand, raise my hand. Uh, what is the pentatonic scale? It's used in a lot of Chinese. Japanese and West African music and okay. it's this musical scale with five notes per octave. It would sound like one, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one. So that is Nilanjana Bhattacharya and she's a professor at Arizona State University and she researches the way music and ethnicity work together. We get the sense of another culture when we actually hear the scale. Nilanjana says that in 1889, that's when the World's Fair in Paris helped popularize the pentatonic scale. There was this gamelan group that performed at the event. And gamelan music is from Indonesia, performed by ensembles that are pretty traditional from Java and Bali. At the time, this performance was really, like, radical. It was so, so new for this European audience. And Nilanjana told me that this influenced Western music, including in the U.S. And so to sort of set the stage a little, around this time, the Chinese Exclusion Act is still in effect, Hmm. which means that Chinese immigrants aren't allowed to come to the U.S. And so they were seen as dangerous, threats to white women, that they were going to take all the jobs. Hmm. So anti-Chinese sentiment is all over the U.S. at this point. That's what you're saying. Yes, exactly. And it's making its way into music. Hmm. So playwrights and composers, they came up with the shorthand way of saying, this is Chinese. In the 1930s, you can kind of hear it in the cartoons. The first example is from Aesop's Fables, and the second is from a cartoon called Chop Suey. And... The characters in these cartoons are just so ridiculous. Like, they're not even people. In Aesop's Fables, they're anthropomorphized cats and dogs, and I think there's a hippo. And then in Chapsui, they're, like, vermin. They're mice. And all of Mm. these anthropomorphized animals have, like, the long braid down their back. Oh, I can see it so clearly. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The, like, slits in their eyes. And they're wearing, like, sort of, like, things that look kind of Mandarin collary. Mm -hmm. Oh, and in Chapsui, they're all drugged out smoking opium. Wow. 
So Nilanjana, she says that all of the images we associate with this tune have really stuck. We all know what it means the minute we hear it. I mean, I would not argue with that. It's wild that, like, this little riff that was in these cartoons back in the 30s still made sense to you when you were in high school when this girl was walking up to the orchestra and then someone played it to mock her. Like, how few cultural totems sort of carry across those generations. Like yeah. That. And I think the thing that really gets me about like tunes or music as stereotypes is that it does it with so much economy. So it triggers an image immediately. And I don't even know how you would fight that. All right. So, Gene, we know this because we grew up with it. Kat, we, we grew up listening to this and hearing it in cartoons, etc. But for people who are younger than us, I'm wondering, is this a thing that they recognize as a racist riff? Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Right in. Tell us. Holler at us. Let us know if you've heard this tune before, this this nine-note riff. And tell us where you heard it. And what you associate with it. Code Switch reporter Kat Chow. Dropping the knowledge. Thank you, Kat. Thanks, guys. That's our show. But before we say goodbye, we have a couple of things. First, if you're playing the game with us, it's time for the answers. Okay, so the phrase that is used to describe someone who does something unexpected, like a politician's strength in the party line, a phrase that was originally used in reference to Native Americans is off the reservation. I have a lot of experience dealing with men who sometimes get off the reservation and the way they behave and how they speak. Mm. It should go without saying that that's not a good thing. Don't say that. Don't don't say that. Don't do that. Hillary Clinton, take note. Yes, don't do that, Hillary. Our second word, meaning hurry up, is... Actually, it's two words. Chop, chop. Chop, chop. It comes from the Cantonese word gup, meaning to make haste. The third word, this one's kind of easy. The third word is hipster. Hipsters in the 30s and 40s were white jazz aficionados who spoke jive, and who among us doesn't, and drank spirits in smoky Harlem clubs. Like we said earlier, these days they're in Brooklyn making podcasts and sipping on overpriced pour-overs. I dug your rap. I speak jive. I don't think I speak jive. And for those of you who listened to last week's episode, we ended that episode with a clue. It's a phrase used to describe someone shady who exploits an unsuspecting public. Hmm. It started being used way back in the 1800s when Chinese immigrants came to the U.S. to work on the Transcontinental Railroad. The answer to that clue is snake oil salesman. According to Lakshmi Gandhi, snake oil was one of the many items that Chinese railroad laborers brought with them to the U.S. It's made from the oil of the Chinese water snake and has been used for centuries in China to treat things like arthritis. And it works. But as word of the healing oil spread, fraudsters started making fake snake oils from rattlesnake. That sounds like a bad idea. I'm sorry. In 1917, a brand called Stanley Snake Oil started being sold. It was made out of beef fat. Red pepper and turpentine actually sounded pretty good up until you got to the turpentine part. And that's when the term snake oil salesman first started appearing as a symbol of fraud. Huh. Yeah, who knew? I had no idea. We learn things, too, on this show. We're all learning together. It's communal. Yes. And don't forget to email us at codeswitch at npr.org if you know what album this sample is from. Game show. Game show. Game show from one of my favorite albums of all time. And speaking of music, our intern, Angelo Bautista, is going to give us the song that is giving him life. Angelo, what is this song? (laughs) 
This song is I Got the Juice by Janelle Monae featuring Pharrell Williams. I recently went to her concert and it was amazing. Oh, yes, I bet it was. I saw her live like uh, maybe three years ago and I was like, yo, she's amazing. Renaissance woman, what can't she do? She's a queen. So while you're here, Angelo, tell us a little about yourself. Okay, so your internship (laughs) at NPR is almost over. Um, Where are you from? What did you do? Yeah, so I'm from Fishers, Indiana, right outside of Indianapolis. I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, and I studied media and audio journalism, and now I'm here. Getting tortured by us. How does that feel? Um, Has it been fun, or (laughs) have you been really frustrated with us? I have not. No, I love this. This is a dream come true, honestly. So uh, if you're listening to this, you should hire Angelo. He's been a fantastic intern for us. Um, and he brings us fire music in addition to just being a, a good colleague. All right, y'all. So if you have other words you want to know about, please hit us up. Tweet at us. You can email us. Respond to the call out in our hilarious newsletter. It's really hilarious, guys. Really, really. If you aren't signed up, do that right now. Go to npr.org slash newsletters. Leah Danella and Maria Paz Gutierrez produced this episode with help from our intern, Angelo Bautista. Woo-hoo. It was edited by Sammy Yenigan and Steve Drummond. And a shout out to the rest of the Code Switch team, Ken Grigsby-Bates, Adrian Florido, Walter Ray Watson, and Kat Chow. I'm Angela Bautista. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji. Be easy, y'all. Peace. Bye. I'm Ann Powers from NPR Music. Last summer, we launched Turning the Tables, a project that radically changed how we talk about the history of popular music, with a list of the 150 greatest albums by women. This week, we're launching Season 2, looking at the 200 greatest songs by 21st century women. Check out who made the list and who didn't at n.pr slash turningthetables.